With our Golden State Warriors in the playoffs, we thought we'd rebroadcast this piece about the design of basketball. So we'll give you nerds something to say when everyone is talking about the playoffs. It's one of my favorite episodes. I hope you enjoy it. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Tomorrow night, 15,000 cheering fans will pack Madison Square Garden in New York City to witness a giant basketball doubleheader. In that cheering crowd, sitting in row C, seat 11, will be a modest 77-year-old man. Those fans won't know that he made possible the game they're watching. But you're going to meet him now. That tape is from an old New York radio show called We the People. The guest is James Naismith. 125 years ago, in 1891, Naismith was a PE instructor at a small college in Springfield, Massachusetts, when a particularly bad snowstorm struck. For days, the students couldn't go outdoors, so they began roughhousing in the halls. We tried everything to keep them quiet. Something had to be done. One day, I had an idea. I called the boys to the gym, divided them up into teams of nine, and gave them an old soccer ball. I showed them two peach baskets I'd nailed up at each end of the gym, and I told them the idea was to throw the ball into the opposing team's peach basket. A lot of sports don't have such a definitive point of origin, but this one does. I blew a whistle, and the first game of basketball began. That day in 1891, James Naismith invented basketball. And uh, what rules did you have for your new game, Dr. Naismith? Well, I didn't have enough, and that's where I made my big mistake. The boys began tackling, kicking and punching in the clinches. They ended up in a free-for-all in the middle of the gym floor. In subsequent weeks, Naismith would go on to make more rules for the game. Some of those are still around today, like the one that says players can't run while holding the ball. They have to dribble it. But there was one thing, not so much a rule, but a design decision that he made back in 1891 that continues to define the way the game is played. He had to decide how high to hang the peach basket. That's Carrie Champion. She's an anchor at ESPN and host of the Be Honest podcast, and she's going to help us tell our story today. Naismith chose to hang the peach basket at 10 feet above the court floor. There was a running track that went around the court at that level, but otherwise the decision was pretty random and just a little higher or a little lower and everything would be different. That arbitrary decision to put the basket at 10 feet caused the game of basketball to take shape around the tallest players. But it happened gradually. In fact, in the beginning, the game was played by shorter, less imposing players. In the very early days of the game, people didn't really have a conception of height having really any importance to the game. That's writer and journalist Andrew Heisel. So a lot of the, the high scorers in the very early days were guys who were like six foot tall. It was not until a few decades in that teams started recruiting really tall guys. And, and at the time, they were sort of referred to often as goons. Nowadays, if you play a little rough or dirty, you might be called a goon. Back then, big men were sometimes called goons just because they were big. The first so-called goon to have a major impact on the game was a big white dude named George Mikan, who played for the Minneapolis Lakers from 1948 to 1956. He was a six-foot-ten monster who wore big round spectacles when he played. Two giants jump in front of the Laker basket. Notice the comparative size of referee Ekman. Mikan towered over his opponents and broke scoring records with his strength and accuracy. 
Watch Mike and forces his way through the center, spins and shoots, and is fouled by Paul Seymour. Watch Mike and get the rebound. Mikan was such a force they actually had to change some rules in the game to offset his advantage. For example, the rule against goaltending came about because of Mikan. Goaltending is the act of catching or batting away another player's shot as the ball is on a downward path toward the basket. Mikan was so tall he could just stand under the basket and swat away shots by the other team. Goaltending was banned in 1945. But rule changes didn't stop George Mikan or his fellow big man from dominating defensively and offensively. You started seeing people saying, like, it's too easy to score. Like, they, they were really sort of disgusted. They thought this should be a triumph to get the ball in the hoop, not something that happens a hundred sometimes a game. The ease with which these super tall players could put the ball in the basket was alarming people. The traditionalists didn't like the way the game was going, but they had no idea what was about to hit them. The dunk, sometimes called the slam dunk. The first one in an organized game happened in 1936, but dunking didn't really get going in basketball until the 1960s. And man, the traditionalists, they hated the dunk. But not just because it was a new, unconventional way to put the ball in the basket. The dunk became political. The key year is 1966. That's Matt Andrews. My name is Matt Andrews. I teach American history at UNC Chapel Hill, and I have a particular focus on sport and society. So it was in 1966. In the NCAA championship game, Texas Western, with an all-black starting five, easily defeat Adolph Rupp's all-white University of Kentucky team. This win by Texas Western against Kentucky was a big deal in the college basketball world. Kentucky was one of the last major college teams in the country that still didn't have any black players. The coach of Kentucky was a guy named Adolph Rupp. Many viewed him as a racist. According to the sports correspondent Frank DeFord, who was in the Kentucky locker room that night, the language Rupp used against the Texas Western players sent a chill down his spine. And there was this moment right at the beginning of the game where Texas Western's David Latin gets the ball and makes a move toward the hoop. The defender in front of him is Pat Riley. He'd go on to win nine NBA titles as a player, coach, and executive. And Latin flies over him. Riley's like six foot four, stockily built, and Latin just rises above him and slams the ball through the hoop. Texas's victory and Latin's dunk were seen as direct challenges to the establishment. After all, this was 1966. There was a lot going on in America. The Black Panthers had become a visible force. In Oakland, the Panthers had armed and organized themselves to protect their communities from brutal racist police. And many white Americans were worried a revolution was about to take place. Black power was this new evocative phrase. So that the failure to pass a civil rights bill isn't because of black power, isn't because of the student nonviolence. What's so interesting about this phrase is its lack of specificity. No one is exactly sure what black power means. Into this context comes the dunk. And the dunk seems to be black power manifest on the basketball court. The dunk is physical. The dunk is forceful. You know, when you lay the ball in, you're laying the ball in. But when you dunk, you're doing it to someone. And at a time when so many white Americans are 
uneasy with the specter of black violence, the dunk becomes suspect. Then to scare people like Adolf Rupp even more comes a player called Lou Alcindor. He would later change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and become one of the most exciting and famous players in the history of the game. But in 1967, he was a young man, seven feet, two inches tall, and already tearing up the college game with his vicious dunks and fast movement. Alcindor surrounded by white shirts. Unstoppable. So the NCAA, that's the National Collegiate Athletic Association, made a decision. The only way to stop this guy was to get rid of the thing he did best, the slam dunk. In 1967, they banned the dunk. And for 10 years, there's no dunking in college basketball. Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was not happy about this. In fact, he explicitly said that the only reason for the ban was because they were scared that black guys like him were going to take over the game although he used much stronger words. Regardless, the slam dunk was done, and college basketball was sent back in time for 10 years. Basketball was in a bad place. The NCAA administrators had made an arguably racist decision to ban the slam dunk. Meanwhile, in the professional league, the NBA, players could still dunk, but fans were losing interest. Here's Andrew Heisel again. This is, for the NBA considered like the low point of the league. There are all of these pieces written about how the game is dying and nobody wants to watch it. And there's all these questions about why. Naismith's original accidental design decision to put the basket at 10 feet had inadvertently given us this beautiful and exciting slam dunk. But it had also caused the professional game to revolve too much around these super tall players. The game had gotten jammed up around the net. People weren't passing as much. They'd just hand the ball to the giant guy and he'd stand under the basket trying to put it in. This had the effect of slowing down the play, and that slowness was draining the game of its excitement. Basketball needed a design solution. People suggested a lot of fixes. No backboard, a convex backboard, a smaller basket, a bigger ball, a smaller ball, a no-scoring zone around the basket, and even a height cap. Another group of coaches called for the hoop to be raised to 12 feet. None of those changes caught on. And then this guy comes along. Well, we feel that uh, those people who are not uh, under contractual obligation, if they'd like to take a look at us, we would... So remember George Mikan, the original NBA goon, six foot, 10 inches tall with big round specs? Well, in 1967, he was working as a travel agent in Minnesota, where he used to play, when he gets a call from a couple of guys asking if he wants to head up a new professional basketball league that would compete with the NBA. What do his old NBA friends have to say about his new job? Good luck, baby. (laughs) I mean, it really was just sort of making up as you go along. It was simply, let's get an idea and let's see what we can do here. That's Terry Pluto, who wrote a book about the founding of this new league. They called it the ABA, the American Basketball Association, and George Mikan became its first commissioner. They were trying everything to get fans re-engaged in the game. Sometimes they featured cow milking contests for entertainment, and one halftime show in Indiana involved a wrestling bear called Victor. big, beautiful, brown bear who looks to me that he weighs at least 500 pounds. Most of their ideas didn't stick. A lot of times good ideas are like that. They're one of 12 things that people stuck to the wall, and and out of the 12, one became really good, 
One helped a little bit, and the other 10 were almost embarrassing. In this case, one of the ideas was really good. In fact, it's the design solution that arguably saved basketball and the secret star of this story that we're telling right now. The three-point shot. Firing for three. Hits a three. Bird is in. Patty hits a three. He's one. Knocks down a double. Fletcher's and knocks it down for three. So all you sports fans know this, but originally, shots from the field were all worth two points. But the ABA's innovation, which they actually borrowed from an earlier defunct league, was to draw an arced line about 22 feet away from the basket, and any shot made from behind that line was now worth three points. The ABA was trying to please the fans. Fans get excited when they see a three-pointer, but they can also go and practice the shot at home. It's more egalitarian. That's Ramona Shelburne, senior writer for ESPN.com. It's the sense that if I practice hard enough, I don't have to be the most athletic guy in the court. I don't have to be an incredible dunker. It's, it's something that when fans watch it, they think, oh, I could do that too. In 1976, the NBA merged with the ABA, and three years later, they brought in the three-point shot. At first, it was about pleasing the fans, but they slowly came to realize something about the three-point shot. When you'd study it, if you shoot 35% on three-pointers and you shoot 45% on two-pointers, if you just break it down, it makes so much more sense to build a team around three-point shooting because you're going to score more points, and that's the point of the game. And now, some teams have decided that the way to win is to concentrate on three-point shots. When the NBA first introduced the three-point shot, Games featured only a couple of three-point attempts. This season, it's more than 10 times that. And if there's any team that's demonstrating the value of the three-point shot right now, it's the Golden State Warriors from California and Mr. Steph Curry. Curry for the lead. Curry splits the defense behind the back. Fires a three. If you don't know who Steph Curry is, he's about six foot three, so he's short by NBA standards. But this hasn't stopped him from being the star of the team and of the whole NBA. I think every kid growing up in America now is trying to be Steph Curry. He is skinny and doesn't seem to have anything physically dominant about him. And yet, when you watch him play, he's electric. Curry can hit three-pointers for Golden State from really anywhere he likes, which makes it hard to defend against him and balances the influence of the big men. Because if there are guys like Curry who can score from anywhere, then the seven-foot guys have to move away from the basket, where they're most useful, to defend. And once you allow players to score an extra point from shooting further out, the game spreads out. You get a whole new game. The game has changed for the better. There's no doubt about it. That's former Indiana Pacer Jerry Harkness. Harkness was a player in the NBA and the ABA. Because the game is exciting. The game is run and shoot, quickness, defense, opening the game up, making it more aggressive. But even though the three-point shot has had a balancing influence, some traditionalists still don't like it. I don't think it's basketball. You know, I think it's like a kind of like a circus sort of thing. You know, why don't we have a five-point shot? And a seven-point shot, you know, where does it stop? You know, that sort of thing. But that's just me. That's just old school. That's San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich speaking to ESPN about Steph Curry's Golden State Warriors last year. What Popovich is saying kind of echoes what people said about the dunk 50 years ago. That it's a trick, a departure from the fundamentals of basketball. And I kind of agree with Coach Pop. 
But even Popovich seems to think that the three-point shot is here to stay. To a certain degree, you better embrace it, you're going to lose. And every time we've won a championship, three-point shot was a big part of it. Instead of designing the beautiful, powerful dunk out of the game, we designed a counterbalance, the three-point shot. And now the game is more inclusive than it's ever been. You've got these little guys that can shoot bombs from anywhere on the court, and there's still room for the big guys close in. The three-pointer and the dunk have become the yin and yang of basketball. All of this has sort of been by accident. The 10-foot-tall basket, the dunk, the three-point shot. But then again, the game wasn't carefully designed in the first place. Really, it came about because all James Naismith wanted was to stop some rowdy kids from getting into too much trouble. And the whole thing started with a couple of peach baskets I put up in a little gym 48 years ago. I guess it just goes to show what you can do if you have Houston Rockets actually broke the Golden State Warriors record for the most threes in a season this year. But the Warriors, led by Steph Curry, are still dominating the NBA from beyond the three-point arc. In Game 2 of the 2017 NBA Finals, Golden State set a new record for the most three-pointers in a final game. This episode was a collaboration with our friends at ESPN and is part of a podcast miniseries they produced called Dunkumentaries. It's a collection of stories all related to basketball's slam dunk. It ran last year, but it's still available on the ESPN mobile app, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joe Sykes reported and produced this story for us and for ESPN with help from Ryan Nantel, Emma Morgenstern, Delina Terman, Joe Fuentes, and Kevin Wilds. Special thanks to Jody Avergan for hooking us all up. Also, check out Carrie Champion's podcast, Be Honest, where she has candid conversations with some of the biggest names in sports, music, and entertainment. This piece was inspired by a Vice article by Andrew Heisel. We'll have a link to it on our website. On the 99% Invisible team, senior producer Katie Mingle did the heavy lifting on this one, with Avery Truffleman, Delaney Hall, Emmett Fitzgerald, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. Kurt Kolstad is the digital director, and Taryn Mazza is the office manager. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. If you want to learn about another little game design innovation that saved the game of basketball, look for episode number 77 of this program. It's called Game Changer. It's about the shot clock. You'll like it. Support for 99% Invisible comes from Talkspace, the online therapy company. Talkspace makes it easy to connect with a licensed therapist handpicked just for you for as little as $32 a week. Anytime an aspect of life moves online, it's still surprising to me, like online dating or online meal delivery service. I have Skype appointments with my doctor now, but when it comes to therapy in particular, I'm really glad it has made this leap because anything that makes it easier for you to talk to someone when you need it is a great thing. Don't use social media for this. It's terrible as therapy. Talk to someone who knows something at Talkspace. 
To sign up or to learn more, go to Talkspace.com slash invisible. And to show your support for this podcast, use code invisible to get $30 off your first month. That's code invisible at Talkspace.com slash invisible. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. We are supported by MailChimp. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. 15 million customers, from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, use MailChimp to reach customers and grow their business. MailChimp helped us grow by giving us a place to tell more stories. This week, the nebulous origin of America's iconic dollar sign. You can subscribe to that at 99pi.org. But to get started sending better email yourself for free, go to MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Build your brand. Sell more stuff. We are a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around, including two new shows. One is Ear Hustle, which I told you about last week. The other is a new show from me. It's a secret, but it'll premiere in the feed very soon. Like very soon. Like this week. I'm really excited. Stay tuned. You can find 99% Invisible and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, and Reddit too. But the nexus of all things 99pi is at 99pi.org. Radiotopia. 